If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. These words of our Lord Jesus Christ from the Gospel of St. Mark, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. This past week on the church calendar, we celebrated the Feast of the Holy Cross. I actually got to celebrate it twice. I was here for the noon Eucharist and then went up to the Synod of the Society of the Holy Cross and we celebrated it again. And at the noon Eucharist from that day and later on that evening, we read from the second chapter of Philippians. Have this mind among yourselves, Paul says, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In the homily, I focused on these words, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, relating how it is that this life of self-emptying, this life which ultimately leads to the cross, is bound up with the Christian life. And later on that day, however, a priest friend of mine, much older and wiser than me, reminded me that the cross is not just something for us to be like-minded with Jesus about. No, it is in the very nature of the church to be a crucified body. We as the church are so intimately joined to Jesus and Him crucified as to be like another self. Jesus recognizing Himself in His body and we recognizing ourselves in Jesus. Paul writes to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but He who lives in me. This is bound up in our baptism, bound up in participation in the body and blood of Jesus, that you and I have died and have been raised to new life. This is not some remote event in history. It is who we are. And as Jesus crowned His life with His death, we are to crown His death with our lives. The church is continually formed in the image of the cross. She lifts her praises to God and simultaneously extends her arms to her neighbors. The church is continually made and refashioned through the grace of participation in this crucified life. Most of us, however, grew up on an image of the cross as simply an atoning death, the truth of which one must either accept or reject. And while that is emphatically true, that is a true statement that one must either accept or reject, it is not by any means the whole picture of the cross and the meaning of the cross for the Christian. This emphasis on a proposition has altered the way that we think about every point of Christian believing. To be saved is to come to a personal knowledge and personal acceptance of the propositional truth of this one act. To evangelize means to invite others to accept this truth. The identity of the church is simply those who believe this truth. But the biblical picture is much more complex. The cross is not just about a truth to be accepted, 
but the reality at the very heart of the Christian life. The reality behind every sacrament, the very foundation of the church's life and witness. A basic way of putting it is that these things are not easily abstracted from each other. And each gains internal coherence specifically from the cross. This is what Paul means by saying, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's also what he means by saying that he means to preach Christ and Him crucified. It means that we must put away pride. It means that we must live with constant attention to self-emptying love for others. We must become servants. We must become obedient. And all of this is summed up in one simple word. Tied very much to the cross. It's death. Another word for this is an old-fashioned word, mortification. If I am to have this mind in me, and if you are to have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, the way is continual mortification. Paul writes to the Colossians, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. How is this mortification to be found? How can we put to death the very things to which we cling? The answer is is found not simply in the meaning of the cross, but on the cross. It must die. It must be crucified. Now I recognize that this is a bit of an advanced take on the cross, but it is biblical and profoundly so. The disciples on the road hear Jesus speak about His impending death and His resurrection, that He must suffer, that He must die, and they do not, even, they do not understand even that. Why is it that they do not understand? Well, Mark says one simple thing about why they do not understand, and he tells us that the disciples were afraid. They were afraid even to ask for clarification. And when he asked them what they were talking about on the road, they are still silent, still afraid. It's an amazing insight into human nature presented here. Fear clouds our understanding. When you and I are afraid and what we have to and what do we have more to fear than death, we tend to become ignorant. Not because we do not want to understand, but because we are afraid of what it might mean to truly understand. The reality is that to truly understand the cross is to understand that the Christian life and the Christian himself or herself is bound up in it, crucified. And that is a terrifying thing to know. It's a terrifying thing for me to even think about. That I have already died. That my true life is not the life I'm living right now, but my life which is hidden with Christ. And even going back to Paul again, that the life that I live in the body, I must live by faith alone. This is the logic behind the martyrs. The logic behind the church's witness in blood. 
But it is also the logic behind every good and fruitful spiritual discipline that yields the bounty of real humility. Be it the reading of Scripture, fasting, habits of prayer, confession, the giving of alms, and even things like this, humiliation. Often deep humiliation. Often even comical humiliation. One of my favorite saints is a, is a priest who used to uh, buy shoes that were like seven or eight sizes too big. And the reason he would do this is so he could walk through the streets in the morning and the little children on their way to school would laugh at him and ridicule him. And he thought, well, that's a great deal. I get humiliated every day on my way to whatever it is I'm doing. The holiest people I have ever known have learned a way of self-forgetting. They are not easily offended. They are often so concerned with inward mortification that their outward appearance suffered. One of the holiest men I have ever known used to wear, he was a bishop, he used to wear worn out shirts all the time that were completely threadbare. He had belts that had all of those you know, indentations in the patent leather because he had worn them out so many times and had them repaired over and over again. He had old, unfashionable glasses. He could be painfully quiet. And he had the worst breath that I have ever smelled in my life. Which made it a good thing that he only spoke when necessary. And only then with words of grace and wisdom and joy. I cannot in fact think of a time when that man did not say something to me through which I was upbuilt. Through which, way, through which I came away with a vision of what could be possible for me in this life. I certainly had fears, but they were overwhelmed by the peace of God. The disciples in their fear in their worry of humiliation, in their worry of being second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, and eleventh, and twelfth, have become like the ungodly in the book of wisdom. They summon death, considering death a friend, pining away. They consider death to be a release from this care, from this ambition, from these desires. And they're both right and wrong at the same time. We should ask this, why is it that they have summoned death? Well, they make a kind of bargain. They cannot avoid it. Everyone dies. You and I all know that. They cannot avoid death. And at the same time, they cannot accept death on its own terms. And so what is left but to summon it? And how do they summon it? Through the exercise of their own pride. They argue, these disciples, about which one of them was the greatest. This is how you do it. You, know, you say, if I'm going to die, at least I'll die the greatest that ever lived. They are counting equality with God a thing to be grasped, and like Adam and Eve, they demand food for their craving to be like God, even if it means their own death. This is why they are afraid. It is the same reason that you and I are afraid. It's the same reason that Adam and Eve were afraid after the fall. 
We know something of the inevitability of death, and yet we sin and sin daily in such a way that we summon death. And this reveals our insane capacity to seek friendship with the world, which we absolutely know will kill us at the expense of our souls. It's why we might say, this job is killing me. Why would we say that? Except that we think there's something good in the ambition of it and the income from it that we're willing to sacrifice our lives, in a sense, for it. It reveals the madness of our ambition and arrogance, our jealousy and insincerity. It reveals the insanity of vaingloriousness. The disciples are full of jealousy and ambition. A way they did not learn from the Lord whom they followed. And the admonition of James this morning is that where those things exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Beloved, this is a needful word in the church today that jealousy and ambition drive deadly chaos in the life of the church. How can any of us doubt that? I mean, I don't want a show of hands, but who's been in a toxic church situation? Anyone? Like, not fun. What drives it? Arrogance, ambition, and jealousy. If you still doubt that it drives a chaos in the life of the church, I have a podcast recommendation for you. The story is told repeatedly. Ambitious leaders in the church full of arrogance, desiring to be the greatest, wreak havoc. On the one hand, they forget that they are first and foremost servants. The ministry of the church becomes about self-inflation and not self-denial. Ordination becomes about self-exaltation and not about death. Marriage about self-fulfillment and not about holiness and self-giving love. And on the other, there is a justification of doctrinal chaos and a complete lack of ordered discipline for their own gain. These come to believe that Christianity itself needs to be saved. That if the church would be successful in this age, we must seek friendship with the world. And so, every kind of unbiblical innovation is justified with mental and exegetical gymnastics until you get where it is you want to go. And it is positively shameful. And behind it, you will find every imaginable scandal. Sexual deviance, financial misdeeds, spiritual abuse, and downright demonic schemes. And friends, if you think for one second that I'm talking about a problem that is outside of us, from which we are immune, I'm here to tell you Pride in one's orthodoxy is often the most deadly form of pride and ambition. We have this happening right in our own ACNA, the shameless upbuilding of personal brands, the furthering of personal aims over and above the good of the church, bishops arguing among themselves who is the greatest. I'm just telling you the truth, right? I've had to sit in meetings of bishops and they, man, they can be really tough to deal with because they're always asking, like, who's got the most power here? But I'm also, if I'm honest, 
speaking about this because I've seen it in myself. I want to be the greatest. I want to be the greatest church planner that ever lived. I want to be the greatest preacher that ever lived. And lurking behind my ambition is a diseased and contemptuous soul who cares nothing for Jesus. I accuse myself. I preach to myself. What I want you to see this morning is that it is a betrayal of the very central identity of the church and her ministry found in the crucified Jesus found on the cross. For that reason, ambition and pride leading to doctrinal, moral, and ecclesial chaos cannot be justified for any reason whatsoever. And it is this that Jesus wants His disciples to see. That their pride will get in the way of the work that He will give them to do. Ambition and pride cannot be justified for the sake of mission or baptized as a zeal for evangelism. It cannot be justified under the banner of cultural relevance. Why? Because it's apostasy. The good news about all of this, however, is that we are not without an alternative. Jesus gives us two images to counter our arrogance and pride. The first, as he says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. In fact, he uses the Greek word diakonos. You must become a deacon of all. Now, I recognize there are debates about who can be a deacon and all that, but I'm simply saying, like, look, every Christian is a servant in that sense. It's why I give thanks that Father Nicholas and Father Jonathan and I were all ordained deacons before being ordained priests so that we would not forget it. It's often been raised. Why not just ordain people priests and not deacons? Why do all this rigmarole first? And it's, it's insanity. It has to be there. It has to be understood. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Secondly, the Lord takes a child in His arms. He takes the child into the midst of the disciples and says, whoever receives one such child in My name receives Me, and whoever receives Me receives not Me, but Him who sent Me. In addition to making it clear, to making it clear that if anyone would be first, they must be last of all and a servant of all, He shows them a still more excellent way. Do you want to know what the greatest image of Christian sanctity is? Do you want to know what the dead giveaway is that you have met a wise human being? It's very simple. It's how they treat and receive children. They light up. They are affectionate. They do not yell. They encourage the child's parents. They treat their own children as the most amazing gift that they have ever received. They would rather bear up immense suffering than ever scandalize a child. And I say this one as one who has scandalized my own children even last night. I scandalized my children with my own cruelty. To those of you who are married and have children, this must be your all-consuming desire. Learn to love children. 
Learn to love your children. Not because of what they can give you, but because of what you can give them. To those of you who are single and desire to be married, here's a great tip. If you want to marry well, look for someone who is just like this, who loves babies. Especially men who love babies. And if you struggle with this in any way, do whatever you have to do to become sweet and gentle with children. Fasting, prayer, confession, therapy, whatever it takes. There's no greater task. Why? Because children are a paradox to us. How can you love a human being who can't love you back, really? How can you love a human being who screams and cries and assaults you sometimes with screaming and crying? How can you do that and be gentle? How can you reason with a child who is upset? You can't. Children disturb us if we're honest about it. That's why we must learn to love them if we are to leave behind arrogance and pride. Beloved, we live in the midst of a society that rejects the gift of children. Married people go their whole lives rejecting the gift of children, even as others face infertility. We live in the midst of a society that brutally murders the unborn, that considers children to be a burden and not a joy. Think of the witness to be made. Think of how our pride and arrogance would fall away if we could just learn to love and receive children. We would not just learn to love Jesus better. We would truly receive Him as Lord, even if it means a whole darn lot of crucifixion. And we would receive from the Father from whom every good comes. Beloved, one of the things we talked about as a vestry yesterday was how much joy we find in having a parish that loves and welcomes children. It touches me every Sunday to see it. Let it be more so true of us. Let us grow in it. Let us love it more. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.